This interview is with Michael Thomas Walker. Hi, I'm Chris Michael, and you're listening to the Fatherless by Suicide series. My first interview of the project was with Justin, and it was great, but it was pretty discombobulating. My motorcycle was acting up, it was a struggle to get there, we recorded in a loud environment, we only had an hour to talk before he had to catch his flight, and you know, Justin had great enthusiasm and insights that made it an inspiring start to the project, but it kind of shook my confidence a bit. So I was looking forward to my second interview with Michael Thomas Walker, which you're about to hear. We were going to meet at my apartment, and I felt a bit more grounded by that. You know, I could make us tea, and we could sit on my couch, and we could talk with some ease. And we also didn't have any time constraints, which was fantastic. And I knew that would enable the conversation to flow at a more natural pace. And most importantly, I wasn't scared shitless like I was for the first interview. And the moment I opened the door, I was struck by Michael's sparkly blue eyes and his confidence. And I wasn't surprised by that because he, like Justin, had an acting background. But unlike Justin, he spent years crafting a one-man play called Bubba about his father's life and death. We swiftly got settled in and had an illuminating tender conversation. And over the two and a half hours that we spoke, there were even times where it was as if he was divulging secrets that I had kept within me. Let me just roll back the clocks a little bit. You know, Michael grew up with one younger brother in Huntsville, Alabama, and and here, let me just uh, let him tell you. I'm originally from Huntsville, Alabama, and we had a farm outside the city. We had about a 150-acre cattle farm with Black Angus cattle. So on the weekends, we would go out to the farm, and then and during the week, we lived in the city. So in, uh, in Alabama terms, we grew up in the country, and we grew up in the city. And what was your relationship like with your father when you were younger? Up until I was 12, it was a great relationship. You know, he took us to the farm every weekend and taught us how to hunt and let us kind of go wild and free and do whatever we wanted. And things, things changed when I turned 12. He had been caught embezzling. He had embezzled about well, we don't know the exact amount, but it was around $80,000 from uh, the car dealership where he worked. And so we came home. I mean, I was 12, so I was really excited about answering machine. <laughs> so I ran to the answering machine, and there were six messages. Uh, some of them were him drunk and crying, and some of them were him apologizing and saying, I'm so sorry for what I've done. And the last message was from the sheriff's department saying that they had him in custody. So that kind of, that moment changed everything about our relationship and changed, changed him. She went to the sheriff's department and found out that he had tried to commit suicide and that he was going to be held in the, um, the psychiatric ward at Crestwood Hospital for 30 days. I was scared. Um, you know, at 12 years old, my in interpretation of psychiatric ward was uh, a place where they go to put you in a straitjacket and lock you up. That was what I thought I was going to see was him, you know, tied to a bed or something, something like that. And when we got there, it was not that at all. So we went and saw him, and he went through the whole thing and said, I stole money from the car dealership. I went to the farm. I tried to take, he said he took a lot of pills. He took the gun, he took a gun up there, some pistols to the farm, but that he couldn't, he couldn't do it. And so he 
took some vodka and drove around in this truck and got really drunk and ran into somebody's house. And apparently, this is something that came out afterwards, but that after he met with my brother and I, he, you know, we left the room and he turned to my mother and he was like, you get me the fuck out of here. I'm done. This is it. And we never talked about it again. He was really unhappy. And my mom and dad were trying to go, they were trying to figure out if they were going to get a divorce or not. They were just going to separate for a while. I, you know, I was old enough to kind of understand what was going on. My brother wasn't. But I understood that he had gotten a job, a new job selling car wash supplies. And mom told us that, you know, your dad got this job so that when we go through the divorce, it won't, it'll show he's underemployed and he won't have to pay as much child support. So he took that job for like 18 months. And then as soon as the child support went, you know, the case went through whatever, the, through, the, through the court, he then quit that job and got another job. And, you know, those kinds of things just kind of, I was like, okay, I see, I see what's going on. And he and my uncle started a company together, uh, sealing and striping parking lots. And he wanted my brother and I to, you know, don't do theater, don't do football, don't do anything after school. I want you to come work for me. And we just kind of had a bad relationship from there on out. I dealt a lot with his manipulation and with um, the expectation of having to be a good son and do what your father says. And I've just very quickly, um, I realized that doing what's right is more important than doing what your parents tell you to do. And that was a struggle that got a lot easier once I went to college. But, you know, at 16, 17, 18, it's difficult to, to look at your parent and say, and say no. I am going to choose to do this extracurricular activity because this is the career path. This is what I want to be, you know, or this is what I want to have happen. He found ways to manipulate us to say things like, I'll pay you extra. Here's an extra $200 if you'll quit the play. Or here's an extra $200 if you'll stop doing football and come work for me. And a lot of it had to do with his own embarrassment. He didn't want to come to the plays because he knew he'd have to see people. And they knew that he'd try to commit suicide. Or he didn't want to come to the football game because people knew he would be embarrassed. So it was his own, his own issues that were holding him back. This wasn't the first time he'd stolen money and embezzled. And this wasn't the first time it had been a big deal. Like the first time he did it was in the 70s. And he stole from the probate judge. And he stole a lot more money. About $150,000, $160,000. And he went to jail. And we didn't know about that. So then when he passed away in 2011, that was when a lot more of the information came up. And I went and I just kind of realized, I was like, I don't really know much about his life before 1981, you know? So I, I went to the library and dug up some newspaper articles about the trial and started asking people about, about him. He was a local celebrity. He had polio when he was young, and so he was kind of the poster child for Huntsville for polio treatment. He rode in Shriners parades, his picture was in the paper. I completely admired him. You know, he, um, he had a lot of money, and he had a lot of prominence, and he had a lot of fame in Huntsville. So I never saw him meet a stranger. He knew everybody in Huntsville, Alabama. Up until I was 12 years old, I was like, 
I want to be a politician. I want to be just like my dad. I want to be a salesman. I want to be able to walk down the street and know everybody. He never allowed his handicap to dictate how he lived his life. He never was like, oh, poor pitiful me, or I can't cut the grass. I mean, he walked with a limp, but it was just, I don't know. He got out there and played baseball with us and drove a tractor, and he just lived life. He accomplished so much and had done so much and never once ever asked for anyone to feel sorry for him. There have always been people in my life that I've looked up to uh, either as father figures or as guides. I always knew that I, dad, my dad is there, but there were, there, you know, were, there were lessons that were missed. Nobody taught me how to shave, right? He was out of the house and not interested in, in having any of those lessons or, or having a talk about the birds and the bees didn't happen. But there were certainly men along the way who kind of gave me a model for how to behave, how to treat women, how to talk to women, how to be a man, right? I mean, you could kind of take from that whatever you want that to be, but in the Southern aspect, there were people who showed me what it's like to be a gentleman. And I borrowed and gleaned as much as I could along the way. Uh, my dad never liked uh, holidays or special events. He was a horse's ass. He just couldn't. He could never do a holiday. He could never do a, a special event. And uh, I said to him on the phone, I said, okay, you can come to this wedding, but you will not be a, an active participant. You're not going to walk anyone down the aisle. You're not doing anything. You're to show up, and you're to be on good behavior. And if you can't, then I have people assigned to ask you to leave. And that's kind of where we had gotten to was that, you know, that was the that was the conversation. And he was like, I can't believe you think that I would act that way. I'm not like that at all. And then I gave him, you know, example A, B, C, D. And he's like, well, I will be on good behavior. And he was. He was on really good behavior. Didn't get drunk and didn't show out. And uh, I was shocked. I was honestly shocked that he came and did what he was supposed to do. Uh, that was a great great thing that happened but what I didn't quite put together at that time was that he was already dealing with post polio and post polio is where you know the polio affects the nervous system and people who get post polio it's not that the polio comes back it's just that the it's as though your your nervous system has been strained for 40 50 60 years and so at some point it starts to fray and it starts to kind of fall apart and you you begin to lose um, uh, feeling in your extremities and the use of your of your legs and your hands and he was already experiencing that and I I wasn't aware of it but that kind of limited his you know he he didn't have to have a walker or a wheelchair uh, at the wedding but very shortly thereafter he was in a, a walk he was using a walker pretty regularly December of 2010, I have a, a kidney stone. So I called, called Dad because he'd had a bunch of them. I was like, all right, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And he's like, go to the hospital. You're going to be fine. He then says to me, and I quote, listen, from now on, what you need to do is switch to 
cranberry juice that way that you're you're warding off the stones where they get started that's why i switched to cranberry and vodka that way i i can keep them from coming i was like okay great (laughs) so i started drinking a lot of cranberry juice but the stones came back so it's now january of 2011 and i call him i'm about to go in and have kidney stone surgery and i was like this was friday and I said, hey, Dad, I just want to give you a call. I'm about to go in for surgery. Uh, and he was like, well, you know, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It's going to be good. So I go in and have surgery. They don't do a stent. But I start having bladder spasms, which mimic a kidney stone. So I was in a lot of pain. I had to spend the night in the hospital. I then called him on Sunday and didn't get an answer. And I called him Monday and didn't get an answer. And he was notorious for this. He would, like, go away for a long weekend. So I didn't really think much of it when I didn't hear from him. But on that Wednesday morning, I got a phone call from uh, my Aunt Barbara Ann. And she said that they had found his body in his car at his house. And that I needed to come home. I immediately called my brother and I said, they found Dad in his car. You need to come home. And he said... Was it suicide? And I said, I don't know. So then we get to Huntsville on the Thursday. And we go to the funeral home. And uh, I immediately was like, I want to see the body. I want to see him. Which <laughs> my wife was like, that's weird. Why do you want to see him? And I was like, I just wanted to see it. I just wanted to see him. But because he apparently had he died on Saturday. And his body begun to decompose already so there was no chance of seeing the body Uh, they they wouldn't let us and I asked about doing an autopsy they said no don't do an autopsy I was like well what did he die of and they said a heart attack I said okay but things didn't add up they just didn't make sense so we left the funeral home I said I want to go to his apartment and when we walked in it was just clean. It was like someone had cleaned it. Things were missing. He had all this jewelry that he had he had earned from being a truck salesman, and uh, he had these awards that he had kept, and all of that was gone. We couldn't find any of his pistols. We couldn't. I mean, it's just like, where's his stuff? Some of the other things that didn't make sense were that his car had been backed into the garage a certain way, and. There were just things that were out of sync with his routine. So what I, I started to do was to ask questions. And I started to to want to find out specifics. I was like, okay. So I called, I called Barbara Ann and I said, I want you to walk me through what happened. And she said, I think it's best if we meet up. I said, okay. Where do you want to meet? <laughs> and uh, she said, let's go to the bar. I said, okay. <laughs> So um, we met down at the bar, and she then proceeded to say that what happened was that Michael Jeff went to see about my dad on Wednesday when nobody had heard from him. He checked at the front door, no answer, went around to the back and looked through the garage door and saw him sitting slumped over in his, in his truck. And when they opened his car, he had a, a handle of vodka that was with him. Immediately, it was suspicion. And then when they went into the house, there were pills all over the floor, and there were empty pill bottles all over the counter. 
I deduced that he'd committed suicide. He did not want to get back in a wheelchair, and I assume that he knew he'd, he'd had many falls that he'd not told us about. He'd gone to the doctor. You know, he was going to have to start swimming at the aquatic center and losing weight and quit drinking and get off of certain medicines and not work the hours that he was working. He was going to have to change his whole life, and he didn't want to do that. So I assume, I, I don't know for sure, that he committed suicide. It felt like that was the right answer. It felt like that was that made sense to me, not this, cock, you know, cockamamie story about, oh, he had a heart attack and then this happened and that. I was like, that just doesn't sound like him to have been have died in his car in the garage. Have I? I don't know. And the way it was, the way it was all set up, it just didn't make sense. But it made much more sense when she told me that they had found him there and that he had been listening to his music sitting in the truck, all of that was harkened back to previous behavior, which made much more sense to me. Um, So there was a sense of relief, a great sense of relief, a a great sense of, um, of knowing. And yet within that, there's still grief and sorrow and, you know, dread. I dreaded it because I knew that she was never going to tell this story ever again to anyone and that it would be my responsibility to tell it to my brother. And and so what happened? Did you tell him? Yeah. (laughs) And that was hard. That was hard. Because my brother's not a very emotional person. He already knew. I knew. We both knew. But it was still difficult to have that moment where you say here's the proof it was really hard for him because the last conversation he had with my dad they left it with him saying to him I hate you so it was really hard on him you know it was it was hard for me that I'm in the hospital having surgery and he committed suicide I have anger about that Um, but my brother had remorse about the last thing you say to your dad is I hate you that was really hard I had so much inside of me like so many emotions and feelings and like holy crap I did the only thing I knew how to do which was to tell a story and to to make a theater piece out of it and so that's what I started doing was writing I started just putting all of it on the page there would be times where it would just wash over me and I would be so sad and then it would just turn on a dime and be like you I just want to shake him for like doing what he did but ultimately I found great peace in a song I was writing it was on my birthday and I was riding down the road and I was going to rehearsal for a play and the Rod Stewart song Forever Young comes on and I had like I'm listening to it and I had this crazy idea for this Saturday Night Live skit which is in the play and then the the back end of it was that I started really just listening to the words of the song may the good Lord be with you down every road you roam 
And may sunshine and happiness surround you when you're far from home. And may you grow to be proud, dignified, and true. And do unto others as you'd have done to you. Be courageous and be brave. And in my heart you'll always stay. Forever young. I mean, it still gives me. And I just decided to keep him in my heart the good and the bad and to love him for who he was and to know that he brought me into this world and shaped whether it's through the bad things he did or the good things he shaped me into the human being that I am and I'm very very grateful for that you know real life doesn't get tied up and into like bows that are beautiful and packages that you can kind of say and the end you know things there are still things that don't get answered and questions that you still have and whatnot but in a play you have a chance to answer those questions and you have an opportunity to to figure that out and I really took that opportunity for myself to say okay I don't know what his doctor's visit was like but I imagine this is what his doctor's visit was like. Or I don't know what I would have said to him if I had one more chance. But if I did, this is what I would say. And it was great. It was really great for my family, my brother and my mom to come and see. It has touched people in a way that I had not anticipated. And the, the most recent production, we had a young girl who um, her father had committed suicide and had, um, had polio. She was 17, and she came up to me and gave me a hug, and she said, I didn't think anybody else in the world knew how I felt, but you do, and thank you. And I was like, you're welcome. Thank you. It's been a really great experience. I, I, haven't, I haven't done the show in Huntsville yet. Um, there are family members alive who don't know the truth, and they're older, they're older family members, and I don't want... I don't want this play to be the way they find out. I've, I haven't had a real conversation with someone about my father's death without it connecting to the play in a while. This is kind of the first time in a long time. I try to be more aware of how it gets talked about or how I bring it up. I'm not ashamed, nor am I afraid to discuss it, but other people get uncomfortable. So I don't want to make them uncomfortable in the discussion of what happened. But if they want to know, I'm going to tell them. I always worry that I will fall into behavior that is learned behavior. That behavior that that he exhibited that I will fall into. And I, and I think as long as I'm aware of it, and try not to, that will keep me from doing the things that I don't want to do. If I have behavior that's similar to my father's, I want it to be a conscious choice. Have you ever thought of you know, taking your own life? Have you, has that ever happened to you throughout? Yeah, it has. Um, and honestly, a lot more since he committed suicide. I actually don't think I want to commit suicide. I think more about Am I going to? 
is that blood that flowed through him that that gave him permission to do that the same blood that flows through me are, are the is the brain the genes that that gave him the green light the same ones that I have or is it my brother you know I do I think about those things it's scary because I I know that it's a choice ultimately whether whether I'm genetically built that way or not it is up to me and um and I don't I don't want to commit suicide I love my life I love my wife I love being here on earth I love everything about being alive but I I I have to admit that those thoughts cross through my through my brain they they do creep in um and it's it's much more of of a fear of is this something that's an inevitability you know and i think about it for more than just suicide i also think about it for his compulsive behavior i think about it for his alcoholism i think about it for his gambling addiction um you know, I think about it, the fact that he did keep people at arm's length but was so charismatic. You know, I, I tend to do that too. It's like, you know, you start going down that spiral of how much am I like him and how much am I different. It's tricky. And it, it is something that I have definitely spent a couple of sleepless nights tossing and turning and thinking about and and wondering. I've only been able to really come to terms with it and to understand that he knew that those tools and that those that those those assets, those people were there to help him. He's the one who chose to not continue his therapy, to not go and ask for help, to not pursue it. Um, I assume because of his own stigma attached to what that is, which is so crazy to me. And maybe that's a generational thing. He was 65 when he passed away. He was born in 47. So, uh, you know, maybe that is a, a stigma that his generation feels or felt, or maybe it's a Southern thing. I don't really know. I would just want to know what I could do to help. You know, he was such a proud person. That same man who taught me that he didn't let his handicap dictate how he lived his life, ultimately chose to end that life because of the handicap. And I would just, I would just want to say to him, like, don't, you know, don't be so proud. It's okay. It's okay to ask for help. And I wish I could communicate to him and tell him how much I loved him. You know, it was such a strained relationship. And I kept him at such a distance. Um, I just wonder if I couldn't have still kept the fences up, but have said, I love you. And thank you. Did you ever tell him that you loved him in, in that kind of like tender way that, that you would want to? Actually, I did right before I went in for surgery. 
uh, I knew they were going to put me under. And I called him and said, hey, I just want to tell you that I love you. But that came from a place of fear. Me feeling my own mortality. And at that same time, him choosing to take his own mortality. So saying I love you, it doesn't have the same essence, the same... You know, the motivator is there, and I think that might have, for me, that's the difference, is that I wish I'd had a chance to just say it to him unmotivated or un, <laughs> without wearing a, a hospital gown. What would you want to hear from him at this point in your life? <laughs> I love you, and I'm proud of you. Once our conversation was over, I was just pretty enamored with Michael and how he approached um, so much of his own healing through the creative process. And uh, maybe that was a byproduct, the healing was a byproduct, but how he spoke of his own creative process and how he spoke of his exploration of his father for who the man he was. Um, and it was just a very tender conversation. And when we were done, we went up to the roof of the apartment building that I live in and you know Michael put on these hats of his dad that were his dad's hats um, that Michael used in, during his one man play and you know he took some photos on the top of the roof with the New York City skyline in the background and it was it was really awesome to get time um, with Michael and have n not have a stressor on um, needing to end at a certain time and I'm so incredibly grateful so Michael if you're listening thank you so much and in the next episode, we're going to hear from Mike from Brooklyn. This is not only one of the more tender episodes I think that you'll hear of the series. It's also, yeah. Anyway, have a listen. <laughs>